Coming up, the 2021 NFL Draft is in our rearview mirror. I'll discuss what took place over the weekend in Cleveland, who came out on top, who left you with your head scratching. Also, Aaron Rodgers wants out of Green Bay. The Kentucky Derby goes to Medina Spirit in a close race. What are his chances for the Preakness? LeBron James is back, but the Lakers aren't. And the buck stops here, as the current two-time reigning MVP in Milwaukee makes their case for the top spot in the East. The NHL's new TV deal, new team, and border issues come playoff time. And it was an eventful week for the Philadelphia Phillies, to say the least, as baseball enters its second month of play. All that to chew on and much more upcoming, but first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to. So your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people, to generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other. For everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well. Feeling fantastic, of course. We have reached month number five of 2021 as May is here. We're now less than four weeks from the unofficial beginning of summer. Put that in perspective, people. We're actually four weeks from today until Memorial Day. The days are getting longer as well as warmer here in the Northeast, thank God, because we've never had any semblance of spring in these parts for almost a decade at least. Although the weather is supposed to turn a little bit toward the end of the week as we're getting into the 50s, maybe some rain. Ah, but let's not bring up those thoughts. Be sure to make good use of your time, people. Certainly don't wish it away in the process, because as we all know, it zooms right past us, and it doesn't wait for anyone. So with that said, you won't have to wait much longer to get your sports appetite satiated, as I'll spoon feed you on all that's going on in the orbit, 
as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me for now 192 episodes, I welcome you guys back. Again, it's a Monday, May the 3rd, in the year of our Lord 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What's expected on this podcast is as follows. A new TV deal that the league desperately needed. A new team is officially introduced and border issues come playoff time. I'll dive into that and the hotly contested races in the Central and East as we enter the final full week of the regular season as the NHL marches on to a postseason in about 10 days or so. We'll touch on everything that's happening on the ice as well as Medina Spirit winning the first leg of horse racing's Triple Crown in a close finish. What are his chances for winning the Preakness a week from this Saturday? We'll get into that. As for what's going on in the association, LeBron James is back after his six-week layoff. His Lakers are sliding in the West and has a word or two about the playing format, which a lot of players have had over the course of the last few weeks, including Mark Cuban, as we've discussed. But now LeBron has to throw in his two cents, and you know I have a word or two about that. Also, the Milwaukee Bucks, do they have what it takes to get themselves in position for a number one seed in the East? Well, after beating Brooklyn yesterday, and they've already took care of business with the Sixers early on this year, although it may be a long shot, but the Bucks may be primed to be in the top spot of the Eastern Conference. So we'll get into all that, as well as baseball. If you're a fan of the Philadelphia Phillies, what a crazy week have you had. A week to forget as it was marred by bean batsmen, suspended pitchers, terrible umpiring, and an overturned call last night in the game against the Mets. So you definitely want to hear what I have to say about that, as well as the Dodgers have hit the skids, and the Yankees are starting to rise a little bit. A complete contrast of a couple of weeks ago when the Dodgers were flying high and the Yankees were right in the tank. All the baseball to get into, as well as my hero and zero of the week. But I had pondered the thought of how I should open up this podcast today. And two things were at the forefront. The first thing was, should I appease the NFL fan and get this out of the way? The second thing was, I can talk about it now and I won't have to discuss anything NFL related, for the most part, until midsummer. I know it sounds like I'm a little bitter here. Honestly, I'm just tired of all the draft talk, the mock drafts, who's going where, winners, losers, etc. And if you're not facing any type of draft fatigue, especially now, but by the time you got to Saturday, even if you're the most diehard of NFL fans, then you don't have a pulse, or if that, you just love the NFL so much that even the most ludicrous NFL headline will get you going. So taking that all into consideration, I figured that's where I'm going to begin clear the way for what's going on in the other sports that are active at the moment later on and just get rid of what's happening in the NFL because we all know the shield reigns supreme in the sports world. So let me just dive right into that. And before I even get to the draft stuff, I want to start off with the news that broke on the day of the NFL draft about Aaron Rodgers. And I know that a lot of people were abuzz with the report coming out of Green Bay that he does not want to come back onto the team next year, that he's decided... He wants to move on and whatever the next stage of his NFL career and what town that's going to be, that's where his mind and spirit is going. It's just a matter of where his body will end up. And when that headline popped up and everybody went crazy over, I was the one sitting back saying, until he gets traded, until he gets released with the cap hit that the Packers are going to take, number one, and number two, until something consummates in a deal, that we could actually talk about Aaron Rodgers leaving. And I'm not trying to say that the report is erroneous. But everybody's just so gaga and crazy. And this is what I mean about the ludicrous NFL headline. I understand it's an MVP. I understand it's Aaron Rodgers. I understand that he is one of the faces of the NFL. But at the same time, until we get word 
through Aaron Rodgers himself, whether it's a press conference, a tweet, some sort of statement that he's released, why is everybody going to go crazy on what number 12 in green and gold has to say? And that's just me. I understand it's newsworthy. I understand that people are going to jump at the headline and people are just going to absorb it, digest it, regurgitate it, etc. But yours truly, I just look at that and say, all right, on to the next. Why am I surprised? Why am I sitting here looking at that headline saying, oh my God, Aaron Rodgers, he wants to leave Green Bay. Where is he going to go? Who is he going to play for? What is he going to do? I could care less. Or like Aaron Rodgers said best in that press conference many years ago, relax. Because that's all I have to say about it. I mean, really, until something pops up where there is a possibility that he may get traded or he may get released. And again, we have cap numbers that we have to deal with here because whatever he's making, anywhere between 35 to $40 million a year, you think that this is going to happen within seconds and that, all right, the NFL world is going to be up on its axis. It's going to be set in the tizzy. And then when the dust settles, here he is pulling up whatever jersey in front of whatever screen through a Zoom call with the owner or the GM and that we could all sing Kumbaya and think that, oh, Aaron Rodgers is already on to the next chapter of his NFL life. Me, I'm not thinking that way. Me, so what? It's in one ear and out the other. Right, he's disgruntled. Right, he's not happy. Maybe it's something with the front office because they didn't get the proper players that he got last year. Mind you that they had the NFC Championship game in his own building and he failed to execute in some of the key moments of that game in order for them to get to a Super Bowl. So whether you have Jordan Love sitting in the back where, let's face it, he has nothing to do with this. The team drafted him, so he's just waiting on standby to see whether or not he's going to get a chance to play at any point of his NFL career. Mind you, he's only one year in. Or whether it's the issue with the coach, as we probably thought last year or two years ago, where Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers didn't seem to be on the same page, but that didn't seem to be the case this past year, right? Considering they're a one seed and we're that close to making it down that Tampa to represent the NFC in the Super Bowl. So for everybody that wants to get all crazy about this particular headline, you do need to take a step back and chill out. Because I certainly did not get wrapped up. I didn't go bonkers. I didn't get crazy thinking that, oh, geez, what's going to happen next? If anything, he took a lot of the starch out of the draft because that was what everybody talked about. Because if you notice, later on, Joe Horn, the former wide receiver, where his kid was drafted by Carolina, the cornerback there, and he felt as if his son, who is now a number one pick there by the aforementioned Panthers, got no shine, got no press because of what happened with Aaron Rodgers, which is a little bit far-fetched when you think about it because... Why would something that happened in Carolina is going to affect his son and his status with something that happened in Green Bay or is happening in Green Bay? So to me, I don't really buy that. But at the same time, I understand where he's coming from because me, I'm most likely in the small minority of people that did not give a flying you-know-what when it came to the news of Aaron Rodgers wanting out of Green Bay. And that's it. And you know management's going to say all the right things. They're not going to come out and say, yes, we want to trade Aaron Rodgers, our franchise, pretty much here for the last decade and a half. They're not going to say that, yes, there seems to be a disagreement between us and our star quarterback, whether it's going to be the president, Mark Murphy, or the GM, Brian Gutenkunst, or of course the head coach, Matt LaFleur. They're all going to say the right things here. 
they're not going to tip their hand to the press for this to just increase and spread like wildfire to the point where if it does get back to Rodgers, and which it will, considering the world we live in in this day and age, but they're not going to do anything to upset the apple cart with Aaron Rodgers and then for him to force a trade or for him to be so irate that he's just going to do whatever it takes and pull maybe even a James Harden to get himself out of Green Bay. And if that's what he wants to do, then so be it. But at the same time, again, it goes back to what he's going to make next year, how much is on his contract, and whether or not that's going to be deemed fit for whichever organization out there that may be able to take on that type of responsibility. And then I also read another stupid report that a possibility of a trade with Seattle, Russell Wilson for Aaron Rodgers, which seems silly at first, although the salaries would match up, but at the same time, are both of those organizations who play in the same conference going to trade each other's quarterbacks just for the sake of Russell Wilson and for everything that we heard at the start of this offseason and we talked about before, which again, one ear and out the other, that now he's going to be traded to Green Bay and then have Aaron Rodgers go out to the Pacific Northwest? I mean, come on. That's not going to happen in a thousand years. So we're going to start off with that, people, because with Aaron Rodgers, and I understand we know what he is and who he is to the league, et cetera, et cetera, but I just don't think that this is going to be something to be looking out for in the days and weeks to come. I mean, barring something that Aaron Rodgers says or puts out that release, tweet, et cetera, as I said earlier, until something like that comes up, then you might as well just go back to bed and hit your snooze until the next NFL headline that pops up, which could be five minutes from now because as we all know, the NFL now is just all about trying to be that 12-month sport, which it is and it has been over the last decade or so, but at the same time, uh, that's why I want to get this NFL out of the way. And I know I'm coming across now as if I'm the old man, get off my lawn, that I'm sick and tired of having to listen about the NFL or deal with it. And of course, I love it. I've been following the sport almost 50 years. So it's not a thing where I can't stand football and I'm reluctant to talk about it. But just all the press that it gets and we know about its popularity. And I'm just tired of having to discuss anything that happens to do with the NFL. So I want to talk about what's happening on the field right now and with the draft. And we understand it's a big event. And the sad part is that I'm just getting warmed up. And I'll get to that in a second. Now on to the other bit of news of last week, which was Teddy Bridgewater being traded from the Carolina Panthers to the Denver Broncos. And in return, they get a sixth round pick. Now you understand why they did that. Remember, Carolina traded for Sam Darnold. They also gave him the fifth-year option, so he's going to be on the team for another two years. So Matt Rule and company looked to Sam Darnold as being their immediate future for this year and next, so Teddy Bridgewater was going to be on his way out. So Denver is his next destination, and he's going to battle with Drew Locke when it comes to the starting job for the Broncos next year. But the one thing that was intriguing, now as we segue into the draft, was the prospects of them maybe drafting a quarterback. And as we all know, quarterbacks were a buzz when it came to the top of the draft, as we've seen, when it comes to the first three picks. And then you had the other two quarterbacks where five went in the first 15, where a lot of people thought that after Carolina, Denver was going to be that next team to pick a quarterback. And what did they do? Yeah, they picked a back all right, but a corner, not a quarter, and Patrick Sertan, the second from Alabama. And before I even delve deeper into the Broncos, that choice and everything that has to do with the draft. 
as far as these selections are concerned. Now here's where I'm going to roll up my sleeves. As I said before, get off my lawn being cantankerous and crusty and just disgruntled, etc. Now with this draft here, Thursday in Cleveland, ABC, ESPN, whatever network you watched. I actually watched ESPN. I wanted to see Kuyper only because I'm not a Kuyper fan by any stretch. But to me, watching Mel Kuyper and the draft is synonymous. I can't watch what's going on on NFL Network. I couldn't even watch ABC's coverage where I believe they had Reese Davis. I couldn't even else tell you who was on that. Uh, Desmond Howard was on the dais there. So I watched the ESPN broadcast with Mike Greenberg. Of course, Mel Kuyper Jr., you had Booger McFarland and Lewis Riddick there. And first off, why does the NFL have to be extra, go above and beyond with everything in a sense of opening up the draft at 8 o'clock and then you have to watch Kings of Leon perform like the final 20 seconds of their song? And I'm not knocking Kings of Leon by any stretch. I'm not a fan of theirs. I'm not, to me, it has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with the league. Why are you going to put them there to start off your draft when all we want to do is just watch the draft picks? We just want to see what's going to go on. We don't want a musical performance. We don't want a song and dance. We don't want anything. We don't want the Muppets to come out. No, no, no. We're not there to see that. We want Roger Goodell to come up to the podium at 8.05. We understand they have to have the intro music and they have to show the players backstage and maybe some that were at home, a la Trevor Lawrence, whatever. And then, hi, welcome to the NFL draft. I'm Mike Greenberg, I'm here with so-and-so, all right, understood, but at 8.05, I want to see Roger Goodell at the podium saying, welcome to the 2021 NFL Draft, the Jacksonville Jaguars are on the clock, that's it, I don't want to see anything else other than that, so in order for the NFL, and again, this is them, and I guess this is what all sports too, we saw this during the NCAA tournament with Miley Cyrus, and I didn't really talk about that then, and I'm not going to talk about it now, but everything has to be a presentation. It just can't be about the draft itself. So that was number one. Number two is I can't stand Roger Goodell, as everybody knows. But the bravado, it's got to stop. I can't stand that he's being some sort of tough guy when he walks up to the podium there. He's like, come on, Cleveland. Come on with his hands. He did that in Philadelphia a few years ago. Just take your booze, take your jeers, say what you have to say, and get off the stage. Because nobody cares that you're trying to make it more like the WWE than the NFL. And then he brings his stupid chair from his home on the stage to the left of the microphone and the podium where he has fans from the team that were represented before each of the draft picks. Really? You're bringing that piece of garbage onto that stage where I hope it got lost in translation back to your home in Westchester. Nobody cares about that chair. So for him to make that as a prop just for fans to sit there and they're not even interacting. I mean, yes, they approach... Goodell or Goodell approaches the chair at the time and they say a couple of words. Uh, Really, was that necessary? So this is what I mean about the pomp and circumstance about having, whether it's bands, his stupid bravado, delayed start times, furniture that no one cares about. Let's just get this draft party started. Can we just do that instead? Start at 8.05, get Jacksonville up there, get their pick in. We all know who they're going to pick and that's it. All this other stuff, just do away with. So I already had a problem with the draft to begin with from that moment on. So now let's just get into it because I'm not here to determine who won or lost the draft. Yes, I'm going to dissect most of the first round because that's going to be the trickle-down effect for the theme where a lot of these teams were made deals, didn't make deals, and of course the Broncos being one of them, which I'll get to in a little bit. 
But to sit here and break down every pick or every team is a mindless practice that's going to take forever. And I'm not making this out to be a three-hour podcast. As it was, I read one recap of the draft from an NFL expert, and he gave one team a C, and everybody else he gave an A and a B. And that goes from A plus to B minus. Uh, what was the point? I'm not saying you got to give out Fs or Ds or whatever, but spread it out a little bit. I mean, everybody got an A and a B. To me, that doesn't make any sense. What, everybody hit home runs in this draft? And the sad part is, and this goes for any draft, but more so the NFL because it gets magnified out of all the sports. It gets the most attention. It gets the most pub. NBA would be next. But as we all know, we can't predict winners and losers until this draft is two or three years behind us. Because there could be that guy from the sixth round on a particular team, a la Tom Brady in 2000, that becomes a Hall of Famer. Or you could get the number one pick overall that everybody thinks is going to be the next hot quarterback, a la Jamarcus Russell. We could go through all the top picks over the years who have failed in their positions at quarterback in the NFL. And then the draft goes up in smoke. All I got to do is look at the Jets three years ago. They draft Sam Darnold. Everybody thought, oh, he's our guy. This is going to be the savior. Finally, our first quarterback is Joe Namath. And look what happened. He's in Carolina. So you can't really look at these winners and losers. And I understand it's fodder for sports talk. I understand it's going to bring hits and clicks and all that. But at the same time, does anybody really care who are winners and losers? I mean, yes, we could look at maybe a certain team. And I'll go with the Broncos right now. That you wonder, why didn't they choose a quarterback? Are they really that sold on Teddy Bridgewater? Or do they really think that Drew Locke's going to be that guy and their quarterback of the future? Knowing that Justin Fields was a guy that a lot of people had high on their boards, but also was very questionable because of the way his play was throughout the year, in particular the game against Indiana and the Big Ten Championship against Northwestern. Now, mind you, he had a great semifinal against Clemson, and Alabama can't really put it all on him, but he didn't have a great game. So a lot of people are hot and cold as far as him translating to the pros, as far as how his talent will play out on a gridiron. But then you also have the flip side of that where the Bears moved up, and I don't know if this was a mulligan based on what happened a few years ago by them drafting Mitchell Trubisky and moving up in the draft trading picks, I believe with San Francisco at the time, to get Trubisky, who's now in Buffalo, and now that they made amends, moving up, trading with the Giants so that they could select Justin Fields and maybe he's going to be the guy that could finally, after all these years, bring the Super Bowl back to Chicago in the days of Jim McMahon and the Super Bowl shuffle. So that's one deal that you can look at as a Bear fan. And still, I thought it was very good for them to make that trade. They need a quarterback in the worst way. I don't think Andy Dalton, he's a stopgap, as we all know. And Nick Foles, let's face it, he had his one shining moment, and it was a big and bright one in Super Bowl 52. But he is not going to be the guy who's going to start any games at any level. He's just going to be relegated as a backup for the rest of his career. And could spot start here and there, but he's not going to be your answer long-term in the Windy City. So by them moving up to get Justin Fields, I thought that was a spectacular move by the Bears. How it's going to play out in the pros, we don't know. I like Fields, but he worries me a little bit. But that's what I mean when we look at the differences. When you look at Denver and they probably should have made a trade instead of getting a corner. Yes, they shored their defense. We all know that if Von Miller is going to come back to anywhere close to what he was prior to COVID and last year, opting out, and we know about Bradley Chubb as the bookends for a pass rush, in Denver in the mile high, you bring in Sertan as far as defensively goes. They have a pretty decent receiving core there. Cortland Sutton. They also have Melvin Gordon, who's a very good running back. 
They do need a quarterback, though. I don't know if Locke or even Teddy Bridgewater is going to be the immediate or even long-term answers, but you could certainly question whether or not they should have picked a quarterback at that spot, whether it would be Justin Fields or even Mac Jones for that matter. And when we look at this draft, at the very top, we knew it was going to be all about Trevor Lawrence. We knew it was going to be Zach Wilson. And Trey Lance was hot that day because a lot of people thought that it wasn't going to be Mac Jones. Even with the connection of Kyle Shanahan with Bill Belichick, he went ahead and drafted the kid out of North Dakota State in Trey Lance. And that's a big dice roll if you ask me. A guy who has not played much in college, I think one game in this past year. We know he has raw ability. Yes, he could throw the ball 80 yards on a dime and we could look at him and say, look at the talent. He has the speed. He has the agility, etc. But until he faces an NFL defense... It is a far cry from wearing a t-shirt and shorts, throwing to nobody in a controlled environment indoors. And it's not to say the kid's going to pan out to be good or be a, an all-pro or even a Hall of Famer. But the likelihood of that, I'd rather choose the former than the latter. Of him not being that big star. And he could be. He could prove me wrong. And I'm not sitting here to say that he is not going to be a star in this league. But again, it is a dice roll nevertheless. Then Atlanta, they were going to pick the tight end from Florida. No surprise there. The other surprise is the Bengals, where they picked Jamar Chase. And you understand why Joe Burrow played with Chase in college when they won the national title two years ago. And it brings them a home run weapon on the outside, which the Bengals, did they really need? You could say it was more of a want because with Tyler Boyd and T. Higgins, two capable receivers, granted they're not sexy names and they're not Pro Bowl, all pro type names, but they're guys that could do the job. But by bringing in Chase, is a guy's going to stretch the field, he's going to have playmaking ability right off the bat. But the one thing to my guy Jai in Baltimore, who I had on the podcast last summer, and also can't forget my two dear friends, Brian Murray and Risa Nicholson, who are huge Bengal fans, you needed to have that left tackle in place. And the tackle in a one, Panay Sewell, went to Detroit two picks later to cover the blind side for a one, Jared Goff. So that was a dubious pick, to say the least. And then the Dolphins, instead of picking Devontae Smith to go with Tua Tagovailoa, they end up selecting Jalen Waddell as their first round selection, number six overall. So Bama certainly displayed here in this draft six players chosen in the first round, which tied the 2004 Miami Hurricanes. And we talked about Carolina. J.C. Horn was the kid's name that uh, I mentioned before, where his father, Joe Horn, as I mentioned, the former receiver, had some not-so-nice things to say about the process and how his son didn't get any pub on draft day due to Aaron Rodgers. But then the Eagles made a big move, moving up, Just two spots, leapfrogging the Giants, who the Giants were looking to select Devontae Smith, the current Heisman Trophy winner. He goes to the Eagles. Remember, the Eagles, they needed a wide receiver in the worst way last year, so they drafted Jalen Rieger, who panned out to be, let's face it, in his first year, a bust, considering that Justin Jefferson had a monstrous rookie year in Minnesota. So similar to what the Bears did with a mulligan, based on what happened a few years ago with Mitchell Trubisky, They did the same just a year later by selecting Devontae Smith to be part of their receiving core, which was a big move. And then the Cowboys, they stood pat by selecting Micah Parsons, the linebacker from Penn State, where the Cowboys drafted, I believe in their first five or six picks, were all on the defense. 
And rightfully so, because they do not need any offensive players, especially at the skill positions, because we know they have wide receivers. CeeDee Lamb last year, Amari Cooper resigned, Ezekiel Elliott, we know about Dak. So they're pretty much set on offense as long as they remain healthy. And then as we move on down, the Jets moved up to get their guard from USC, which was a good move because they definitely need some offensive line help, of course, to solidify not only with Makai Becton last year's pick in the first round in 2020, but to also have a guy right next to him in Becton to patrol that left side of the line for a decade plus to come. And then, to no surprise, falling into the lap of the New England Patriots is Mac Jones. And we know about that connection. The Saban and Belichick going way back into the late 80s into early 90s. And if Mac Jones is on his P's and Q's, and I'm not saying that from an off-the-field standpoint, but just from uh, knowing the playbook, getting involved in every which way possible, and you think he would considering the program he came from and the connection there between those two coaches, that this could pan out to be, I'm not going to say Hall of Fame, but this could pan out to be a very lengthy and just a great marriage overall. Now the thing with Jones is that he's not mobile. Same for Tom Brady, he wasn't mobile either, but if he gets the reads and he gets the throws off and is able to pull his team out of the fire when... They absolutely need to, especially in the fourth quarter. If he's able to win games late or to that degree, then they got themselves a quarterback for another decade plus and the Patriots, who were gone at least for one year at 7-9, and nine, didn't have to worry about them making the playoffs or doing anything like that. And it's not to say next year is going to be an automatic, but year two, three, four down the road, if Jones does pan out, the Patriots are going to be back. And considering all the offseason moves they made during free agency, that just solidifies how the weapons are going to be there, not just for Cam Newton, but even more so for Jones after this next year. And then quickly, the Raiders had a little bit of a reach there with Alex Leatherwood, the tackle from Alabama. A lot of people thought he could have been a second round pick, but the Raiders you know, did Raider-like things when it comes to the draft. So they were able to stabilize their line there. Remember, they had Rodney Hudson and a couple of other guys leave or get traded here in this offseason. And the Giants, they were still able to get a wide receiver in Kadarius Toney from Florida. So that wasn't a big loss, although they would have rather had Devontae Smith. But they certainly still had some firepower there, bringing him in the Florida Gator to go along with their own quarterback and Daniel Jones. The Titans then select Caleb Farley, who is the wild card of this first round, because here's a guy that has a ton of talent, a ton of speed, but has a very bulky and that's to say it nicely, back, which is very concerning. And we know backs in any sport are high risk. And in this case, they looked at it, the Titans that is, and said this could be a high reward if this kid's going to be healthy. So we'll see if that pans out. The Steelers select Najee Harris, which was a no-brainer. They need a running back in the worst way. As I said last week, no offense to Benny Snell or Anthony McFarlane Jr., but they needed a guy that's going to carry the mail 20 to 25 times a game. And we understand no offensive line and they took a tight end and a couple of offensive linemen after that. So hopefully that'll be enough with Kevin Colbert, the GM, and to bring those first four players in to make a mark. And the Steelers do need a tight end and the kid that they selected is also a very good blocking tight end as well as a pass catcher. A lot of people think that he could be a Heath Miller light. Remains to be seen. So the Steelers did well in that regard. Jacksonville, surprisingly... To a certain degree, drafted Travis Etienne from Jacksonville. He's a guy that, of course, played with Trevor Lawrence in college. But remember, they had James Robinson, a guy who was an undrafted running back. So why would they draft another guy at a position where it's already been filled? 
listen, not to make James Robinson out to be Emmett Smith, but I guess this was just for reinforcements to have another guy. And Etienne is more of a guy that could also catch the ball from the backfield. He could probably play a little bit of wide out as well as run the ball. So to me, he's much more versatile, I think, than a guy like James Robinson. Then at the bottom of the draft, the Ravens had two selections, one being the wide receiver out of Minnesota, Rashad Bateman. He's a guy that's hopefully going to be the one to cure all their passing ills, which doesn't really make sense from this regard. They have not been successful with number one picks and wide receivers, Rashad Perryman and even Hollywood Brown. And Hollywood Brown is supposed to be a guy, as we all know, a speedster, a burner, was supposed to be that guy to be the one to stretch the field and to make big plays for the Ravens in their passing attack. But until the offensive coordinator and, of course, John Harbaugh change the offense a little bit or maybe just tweak it to where they're going to pass a little bit more, then I could see Bateman being a huge factor or maybe being that final piece to this Raven offense because unless they, I don't have to do a 180, but even if they do a 90-degree turnaround to where they're going to throw the ball more often and trust Lamar to get the ball downfield, then this is a great pick. But if they're going to continue to run the ball like they have been doing since Lamar has been the starting quarterback, and why would they change that? We understand the chances of Jackson getting hurt, running the ball more often than he should, but maybe they're looking to take their offense to the next step where they could apply more pressure with his arm more so than his legs. And you would think by them drafting Bateman is a direction that this offense is headed because why would they bring in a guy like that? And not to say Bateman's going to turn out to be Jerry Rice, but if they didn't go in the offseason as far as free agency to bring in that wide receiver and they draft a guy like this, you would think that they're going to put the ball in the air a lot more than they are going to run it that they have been over the last few years. So that's one that we'll have to wait and see on. And then they also drafted the edge rusher out of Penn State, which they said has a lot of ability, although he didn't record a sack last year for what that's worth. But it just brings another added dimension there. Remember, they lost Matthew Judon this offseason to New England, so he's pretty much going to replace him. And the defending champs bring in another edge rusher from Washington, Joe Tryon, which I've never seen play, but he's a guy that's pretty much going to fill in the spot for Jason Pierre-Paul. When he retires, as we all know, he's getting up there in age, and maybe even for Shaq Barrett, although he resigned that deal, but a lot of these players on the team, they pretty much only signed one or two year deals considering that Brady's going to be part of this mix for the next couple of seasons. So Tryon is a guy for down the road and can learn under the wings of those aforementioned pass rushers that the Buccaneers have. And again, this could take forever as far as breaking down the winners and losers, which I'm not going to do, but for pretty much from what I've seen and even some of the stuff that I've read, a lot of people think that the teams that came out on top were the Browns, The Eagles, obviously for what I mentioned about Devontae Smith and plugging up some holes there as the Eagles look to try to rebound back from the disastrous year that they had last year. Not to say that they're going to be anything of a contender in the NFC East, but still, they pretty much have set the foundation now moving forward post Carson Wentz, post Doug Peterson, the Super Bowl team, to now put themselves in a direction where they could now look up and look ahead as opposed to kind of stay in the middle or try to rebuild a different way. And then the Colts, the Raiders, and the Saints. And the Raiders, it seems like year in and year out, they always find a way to screw things up. The Saints didn't have many picks on the board. And I believe they picked, was it Peyton Barber? uh, Defensive kid in the first round. And we all know, post Drew Brees, with a new quarterback, 
And you would think the same system there with a one Sean Payton. But the Saints didn't look like they made out pretty well here in this draft. Also, the Colts, although they drafted that uh, one kid, Quiddy Pay, but they need to shore up their offensive line considering Anthony Costanzo had retired. We all know their defense is going to be pretty stacked. But with Carson Wentz now in the fold, a lot of people thought that even with Michael Pittman, even with T.Y. Hilton and Jonathan Taylor, that they could have made some moves there on the offensive line and could have had some upgrades there to put themselves in a position to compete with the Kansas City Chiefs of the world, with the Buffalo Bills, and the powerhouses there in the AFC. As for the Browns, they started their draft with the corner Greg Newsom out of Northwestern, which they actually had two players drafted in the first round, I believe, in forever. I know it's been a long time since Northwestern was able to have two players drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. So a lot of people thought the Browns did well in this draft as well as the Ravens. So again, we could dissect it until we're blue in the face, but what does this mean in the grand scheme of things? We can come back two years later and go through this all as far as the winners and losers and pretty much it's going to be all for naught. I know it's fun to talk about and fun to get into and to break down every little facet of the first round to the seventh round pick for every team, but again, I'll be here all day if I do that. And that's pretty much what you have with the NFL draft. I don't know if I need to go any deeper or any further with that. Now, one other thing of note, for those who are interested, Richard Sherman, who is mulling his future, the Seahawks have reached out to him for a possible reunion. And I don't know if Sherman wants to go back there. I don't think the Seahawks are Super Bowl ready, if you ask me. Because you would think if you're Richard Sherman, your next step is to try to win a Super Bowl, and then hopefully after that will be... Canton and the Pro Football Hall of Fame calling you. But I don't know if that's going to be imminent. I don't know if that's something that the Seahawks, and I believe they drafted a corner with the top couple of picks. Now, remember, they didn't have a number one pick. I believe they also had four picks in this whole draft. Remember, they had brought in Jamal Adams and sent their picks to the Jets. So they, and they let loose of Shaquille Griffin. For them to bring in defensive help, and maybe a guy like Sherman will help with the younger players on the team. Who knows? I don't know what's in Sherman's head. You would think that he wants to go play for a contender. So that's something that we'll have to keep our antenna up to see whether or not he's going to come back and be in his final few years or year in the league to close out his career where we started. So that's what I have with the NFL people. We could move on to now what's happening on the field. And I'm going to segue that to baseball I'll get to the NBA and the NHL right after that and then close out with the Kentucky Derby. But baseball had a crazy week, and especially if you're a Philadelphia Philly fan or part of that organization because the Phillies, and this is just since Wednesday, all you have to do is look at the last five days with the Phillies and you could put that together and make it into a Netflix season. Because when you take it back to last Wednesday, when they were in St. Louis and the left-handed reliever of the Cardinals, Genesis Cabrera, hits Bryce Harper in the face. And thankfully, he's okay. He actually played over the weekend against the Mets, but sat out a couple of games just to kind of get his bearings back. But not only did he get hit in the face, on the next pitch, next batter to Didi Gregorius, he drills him right in the ribs, which sets off a frenzy. Joe Girardi comes out, both benches are warned. He says, how could you warn these guys? Because now I can't retaliate. And he goes nuts, bonkers. He gets thrown out of the game. 
to where the Phillies, who have been struggling here early on, but they still had another game against St. Louis, which I believe they split that series, but that was the start of this drama, excuse me, that led into the weekend. And then Friday night, you had the scenario in game one against the Mets where Jose Alvarado, the left-handed reliever, coming there in a big spot in the eighth inning, I believe second and third, where he struck out Dom Smith to end the inning and the histrionics and him just flexing at the mound and pointing at uh, Dom Smith and gesturing and all that, which led to both benches clearing, no punches thrown, but Dom Smith, even in the postgame, said, I don't mind if a player's going to pimp a strikeout or a home run or whatever, and he's actually for that, but for him to get crazy and yell and scream and curse him out in Spanish or whatever, it was just a little bit too much, and I agree. We understand it's baseball in 2021. If a player's going to throw their arms up in the air or fist pump or yell or whatever, all right, you got to deal with it, but yeah, he went a little bit overboard. To the tune where he received a three-game suspension, which he's appealing. But that was just the start of then what happened the following night, where in a tie game, again in the eighth inning, where there was a runner on first, where it was Andrew McCutcheon, and a ball hit on the ground to end the inning with a double play, where it was called that Andrew McCutcheon was out of the baseline, a ground of the second, where Lindor was playing back. He tried to reach to tag McCutcheon, where he didn't do so. He threw the first, the batter was safe. And... Without watching the replay, McCutcheon did not dodge the tag of Francisco Lindor. So it made you think, all right, well, maybe the umpire saw it differently. Or if we get a different camera angle, perhaps he did run out of the baseline. So therefore, it would be a double play. That wasn't the case. And you've had so many of these instances in baseball over the last week where in the game with the Marlins and Brewers, where you had a situation where there was a play, uh, the player was obstructing the site or the baseline where they actually called it against the Marlins or sorry against the Brewers where Craig Council was just in outrage over it and didn't make any sense and you had that similar situation Saturday night with the Phillies and the Mets to where they called double play destroyed their hopes of a rally in that inning to maybe take the lead and take it to the top of the ninth to close out the Mets there but no Michael Conforto hits a home run on the top of the ninth, and he's finally hitting over the last few games. So when the Mets win 5-4, and then last night, you had the scenario where in the bottom of the ninth inning, down 8-4. And in this case, it was 8-5 with Hoskins as the tying run to the plate. He hits a shot off of Edwin Diaz, who came in and saved the day the night before in a pressure spot in a game that the Mets absolutely had to win. And for him to come in there and was about to implode as the ball... Comes off the bat of Hoskins. It's going toward the wall. It looks like it's going to clear the wall. It hits the top of the wall. Comes back into play. Sure enough, replay shows that it's a ground rule double. It didn't go over the fence. Or it didn't hit a chair. It hit the top of the outfield fence. And that's above the scoreboard. Comes back. Diaz gets pulled from the game. Jeru's Familia comes in. Strikes out Bryce Harper. The Mets win two out of three. And the Phillies close out just a wild and crazy week. And if this is going to be any indication of what the NL East is going to be, considering that both the Mets and Nationals are tied with the Nationals having one more win than the Mets. Nationals are 12-12 and because of a four-game winning streak and a sweep over the Marlins this weekend. And with the Mets winning two out of three, they're 11-11. and This NL East is going to be a Royal Rumble, to say the least. And I understand it's only the first week of May. We can't get crazy. It's still a long season ahead. But man, this is going to be... Just a hotly contested division. 
And everybody knows it's the best division in baseball. So definitely strap your seatbelts into this one because it's going to be a wild ride. At least you would think. So that's what you had there with the Phillies. Two weeks ago, I came onto this podcast talking about how the Dodgers were not only riding high from winning their first championship in 32 years, but started off their season 13-2 and before losing the closeout game of a potential sweep against the San Diego Padres in Petco Park. And they weren't able to seal the deal. They lost 5-2, three runs in the eighth inning. And you thought, all right, they won the series against San Diego. There's no rivalry here. The Padres are 13-3, and riding high, flying high, you name it. And now two weeks later, after losing 10-14, of losing 2-3 or three to the Reds, losing 3-4 out of four last weekend to the Padres, and then losing 3-4 out of four this weekend to the Milwaukee Brewers, the Los Angeles Dodgers are in second place in the NL West. Now we know the manager, you have to hold your breath with him sometimes. And you have to doubly hold your breath with that bullpen, especially the back end. We know Kenley Jansen, he's reputable. And we understand that he had some medical issues with his heart, which is very serious. But at the same time, he's not the same reliever he was three, four, five years ago. Doesn't have the same velocity on his pitches. And if there's one Achilles heel on this Dodger team, it's definitely that. So the Dodgers, they had to be propelled by two grand slams in the game yesterday against Milwaukee in order to salvage not being swept out of it's not even Miller Park anymore. I saw that they changed the name. I mean, please, with these name changes for ballparks, I'm calling it Miller Park. But anyway, the Brewers, who have their own issues with their starting pitching, Corbin Burns, who was put on IL with an undisclosed injury. We don't know if it's COVID-related. We don't know if it's arm-related. As Craig Council was, that's the manager of the team, as he was just mum about the whole scenario and couldn't get into it from what he said. But the Dodgers, I tell you. And that's baseball for you. That's the ebbs and flows of a season. And to think... We're a month in, two weeks ago, we're talking about the Dodgers on their way to cruising to a division title, and now they're just pretty much scratching and clawing just to keep themselves above, not just 500, but in first place in a very competitive NL West, where the Giants are right now your first place leader in that division. And then, two weeks ago, as I talked about the Yankees, who were submarining down to the bottom of the American League East waters to the bottom of the ocean. And here they are after a sweep of the Detroit Tigers, big whoop, 8-21, and worst team in the sport. But they play who they play, and Jameson Tyon bounces back there with a win on Saturday, his first win in over two years. And Corey Kluber, who pitched pretty well in his last start against Baltimore, but had his most sparkling performance yet, eight innings, 10 strikeouts, two hits, no walks against a dreaded Tiger offense and listen when Miguel Cabrera and we know he's long in the tooth right now but he's batting 115 so that's all you need to know about the Tigers right now but the Yankees have bounced back to where they're now 500 and up next they have a very intriguing and I'm sure all the players and their fans salivating at the thought of the Houston Astros invading the Bronx starting tomorrow where it'll be the first time they'll visit as I like to call it, the snake pit on 161st and River Avenue, for the first time since the 2019 League Championship Series. So the fans, I'm sure they're going to come out in droves, only whatever, 8,700, 15, 20%, whatever it is. I don't even know. I should know this, but I could care less. And having the Astros come in, ready to unleash their fury, their anger, frustration, whatever you want to call it. So it's going to be a very dramatic three-game set 
here as the Astros will step foot in the BX and face the Yankees. So let's see if the Yankees can turn their season around. And you would think, I mean, please, are you really going to think that the Yankees are going to be hovering around 500 or below that for the first two, three months of the season? I think not. We know they're much better than what they are. And we'll see, this series will certainly be a little bit of a litmus test. Although the Astros have played a little bit better, but at 15 and 13, they're certainly not going to be reminiscent of the championship team or the team two years ago that went to a World Series and played against the Nationals. And as you look throughout baseball, everything's pretty much status quo. You don't have a lot of movement here in these divisions. Yes, teams will always go on winning streaks or teams will move up. But nothing really that's eye-popping to say, wow, look at the way this team has performed over the last week, 10 days, etc. So we talked about the Nationals and their winning streak. We talked about, obviously, the Dodgers. Brewers are playing well. And again, I'm not going to go through all the divisions to see where we're at here on May the 3rd. But one funny story coming out of Oakland, and that's a team that, as we all know, started 0-5 and 1-6 and and then had that 12-game winning streak. And then now they've pretty much been 500 since then. But their starting pitcher, Jesus Lizardo, you talk about injuries? Well, here's one for you where he broke his pinky while playing a video game in the clubhouse where an x-ray showed a hairline fracture. And he actually, this was on Saturday where he actually pitched that day. But now he's going to be on the IL. It was said that he accidentally bumped his hand on a table while playing the game. And the game wasn't even known. Who knows what was Call of Duty or MLB The Show. Please, I'm curious to know what game he played that got him so frustrated that he banged his hand on a table. So... That's one of those that you have to put alongside of freakish injuries. I remember years ago, I think it was Joe Carter, if you recall. He was on the DL because he punctured his eardrum using a Q-tip. I think it was Joe Carter, the former Toronto Blue Jay. But you have all these crazy injuries, and that's one that you could certainly put up there and rank. But as far as baseball, that's pretty much what you got, people. And we'll continue to keep our eye on that as we move into this month, the second month of play already. Because the season started there April 1st. So we'll continue to keep our eyes on that. I'm going to turn my attention to the NBA now. And with LeBron James back, I know the Laker Nation or the Laker faithful could take a deep sigh of relief or just exhale right now. Because with the way that the Lakers have been playing, and even with Anthony Davis back, he is not 100%. He has not played well in the handful of games that he's returned I believe it was about 12, 13 days ago. But LeBron has played a couple of games. He's only averaged 17.5 points. You know they're going to manage his minutes. It's going to be gradual. He's not going to go in there and become a world beater. But And I'll get to the Lakers as far as where they're at in the standings right now because they're actually tied for 6th and are that close to 7th place. And the reason why I say that because we all know the playing tournament starts from 7 through 10. And with the Blazers winning in Boston yesterday... They tie the Lakers at 36-28 and 28 with now, what do we have? If we do the math real quick, eight games to go over the final two weeks. Where LeBron in the postgame expressed his displeasure for the playing tournament saying that whomever made that blank up should be fired. Now LeBron. And listen, I'm not a huge LeBron fan. I respect him to the hilt. And I got nothing ill will to say about him. I know a lot of people pound on LeBron, whether it's Stuff that's happening off the court or even on the court. Whatever. But to me, I'm not that guy. I revere the guy. I respect him. How could you not? As far as his talent is concerned. But for him to come out and say, and he has a right to say it. I'm not trying to say he shouldn't have said this. But for him to say that 
that person should be fired. Was he saying that prior to him being on the shelf with that high ankle sprain? Was he saying that when he was third in the Western Conference? Was he saying that even two weeks ago when they were somewhere around four or five in the Western Conference? Now that he's back and that his team is teetering on the brink of becoming part of that playing tournament, now he has something to say about it, which to me, it's going to fall on deaf ears. I mean, really, LeBron? As I said before, and I'll say it again, if he and Anthony Davis are a thousand percent healthy or close to it, come that tip off game one, if it is a playing tournament, you mean to tell me they're going to lose that game? Now, could they lose it? Of course they can. I mean, nothing is guaranteed, especially when it comes to the competition is concerned, but you know that if they're going to play that one game and if they're a seven seed, all they have to do is just win the one game and then they'll play whomever the two seed is. So that's all you got to say about that. So he shouldn't even be concerned about the playing tournament. Yes, he could say he doesn't like it. He could say somebody could be fired, whatever, but come on, LeBron, really? I I think he'd be a little bit bigger than that knowing that, hey, win the tournament, that's all that matters. And we're going to go in there and we're going to try to defend our title. If he said that, nobody would even care. But because it's LeBron and because he has to say that, I mean, really, he didn't have to say that if you ask me. It's Come on. Playing tournament, we heard Luka Doncic say that. We heard Mark Cuban say it. And now he's throwing his hat in the ring only because his team right now is just a shade above the seven seed. Because if he was a three seed, would he have said this? Absolutely not. That's my point. So we have that to deal with if you're a Laker fan. And if you're the East and you're looking at the top few spots... The Milwaukee Bucks are a charging right now, and you wonder if they're going to make a run at the top spot, considering the way it's shaping up here. Now, chances are, with about eight games to go, and they have two games to make up in the loss column with the Nets, and although they have a game with them tomorrow after beating them yesterday, and they are three games behind the Sixers as of right now, and you would think the Sixers aren't going to go into the tank And the schedules down the stretch for all three of these teams are relatively easy. But the reason why I bring up the Bucs for this reason is because if they win tomorrow against the Nets, they will have a season series advantage two games to one against them. So if they tie them in the standings at the end of the season, let's say two and three, they'll have the two seed. So they'll host Brooklyn in a seven game series in the conference semifinals. And if they so happen to get the top seed or tie the Philadelphia 76ers, They swept them 3-0 in the regular season. So they will have the number one seed. Now, as we've seen the last couple of years, they've had the one seed and it's blown up in their faces. Losing in a conference final to the Toronto Raptors after being up two love. And then last year, losing in the second round to the Miami Heat. So if you're Giannis Antetokounmpo and company who had 49 against Kevin Durant's 42 yesterday in a matchup against former MVPs or even, in this case, the current MVP and Kumpo, I would think they're going to try to make this push, beat the Nets tomorrow so they can have that advantage and see where the chips fall. As long as they could make a run here, maybe to push for a two seed to get that series. And it's going to be competitive if it's against Brooklyn, but at least they'll have the home court in that regard. And who knows if Philly falters or trips up here over the next two weeks. And if Milwaukee pressures them to the point where they may be tied at the end of the year, then guess what? They have a one seed and they'll be hosting throughout the whole Eastern Conference. Something to keep in mind of, I wonder if this is going to be a time where Coach Budenholzer and Giannis knows that this is time to put pedal to the metal, that they've, I don't want to say they've been laying in the weeds, 
But when you look at the East, it's been all about the Brooklyn Nets. It's been all about the Philadelphia 76ers. Recently, it's been about the Knicks. If you want to say the Hawks as an underdog type team and the way they played fine, we know the Celtics have been miserable and I'll get to them in a second. But when you're looking at the East, a lot of people aren't talking about the Bucks. It's a combination of their past playoff failures and them just pretty much being in the three seed for most of the season. So now you got to wonder whether or not they're rallying the troops at the right time to see if they could, as I said, get that extra step, that extra push for them to maybe get a two seed or who knows, maybe the top seed in the East. I would think if they get a top seed in the East, it would almost be a curse more than a blessing because then they're going to have that stigma over them being the number one seed for the third straight year and then watch them get bounced out in a second round against who knows, Knicks, Hawks, Celtics, whatever. But I think if they were to push to two and get the home court, I think that would be a big sign for them considering where they've been pretty much this whole year. And as I take a look at the standings here, as we're down to the last couple of weeks of the season, in the East, we've talked about the top three. The Knicks have the four seed, a game and a half ahead of the Hawks, who are on a long West Coast trip. Now, they beat Houston there a couple nights ago, or was it last night? 122-97, they just destroyed the Rockets, but then, as we all know, the Rockets are awful. John Wall's done for the year. But after this, they still have to go to Phoenix, play Denver, and both LA teams, and then another tough team in the process. Off the top of my head, I don't know. I don't think it's Utah. I think they played Utah earlier this year. But still, Phoenix not easy. Both LA teams, Denver, certainly a tall order for the Knicks to overcome here late in the season. We'll see if they hold on to that four spot by the time they get back home to close out their season. Then the Hawks, like I said, are tied with the Heat right now at 35-30 and 30 or 5-6, where the Celtics are in the seventh spot. So, of course, they'd be part of that playing mix right now. And the Celtics, who had one of the comebacks for the ages a few nights ago against San Antonio, they were down 32 points in the game. And I was monitoring the game on on my phone, and I looked, and they were down big numbers to the Spurs. And I said to myself, this Celtic team, uh, they can't get out of their own way. And I know they had a rough year with certain injuries and things of that nature, but there's no excuses. Zero. So for them to come back behind Jason Tatum's 60 points, which tied Larry Legend himself, Larry Bird's, Celtic record for most points scored in the game. And for the Celtics to win that game and then to have Portland come in their building, you figure maybe a little momentum, that wasn't to be the case. And in fact, at the end of the game, with about 40 seconds to go down seven, you had this collision between the aforementioned Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, their two best players, where they collide. They collapse to the floor. Brown has to be ushered into the locker room with help. Tatum then slowly, after he exits the floor, Brown that is, then Tatum goes into the locker room, and now you have to wonder what's going to be the status of their health moving forward. Now, Tatum did say that he should be good, he was feeling okay, Brown, it's unknown at this time, so we have to wait and see, but the Celtics aren't going to go anywhere this year, let's face it, I don't care how hot they get, whatever, they are going to be... Who knows? We'll wait and see where they end up in the standings. If they're six, then we know that, okay, they're going to play a three seed and chances are with the Bucs, unless that changes, as we've said. But that's it for the Celtics. I'll talk about them more later on, but that was just a wild weekend for them. And that's on top of early in the week with Marcus Smart being suspended for a game with some choice language for an official in a game Tuesday night. Then he gets thrown out of the game there yesterday against the Blazers with Yusef Nurkic. Uh, the team is just out of control here. And I'm not trying to say that it's unmanageable for Coach Stevens, but what is going on? 
So that's all I'll say there with the Celtics. The Hornets have LaMelo Ball back in the mix. But you think there's enough cushion between the Celtics and Hornets who they beat there the other night on Wednesday. That was a game where Smart did not participate and was suspended. But now with Ball back, you wonder if Gordon Hayward will be right behind them so the Hornets could put themselves in a position where who knows if they'll host that first game against the Celtics if it happens to be a 7-8 scenario with them two where you have the Pacers just a half game behind the Hornets. And what about the Pacers? The other day where they won 152-95 to against the Oklahoma City Thunder. And I didn't do a lot of homework or research on this, but man, I can't recall of a game where a team not only scored 150 points, but blow them out by 57. Now, we understand it's the NBA in 2021. You see a lot of these high scores, you know, one in the 140s, and I'm sure there have been a couple of 150s this year, but that's an embarrassment. And if you're Oklahoma City Thunder, we get it there playing out the string, and they're, I can't name five guys on the team right now, but man, that is just deplorable, to say the least. So, the Pacers are holding fourth there with the ninth seed, and then Washington follows up there where the Raptors, although with a big win in LA yesterday, two and a half games back, and it looks like they won't have a shot for the postseason. And then in the West, we talked about the Lakers scenario, but the Suns, they've leapfrogged over the Jazz, although they're tied, but remember, we talked about those tiebreakers earlier with the Bucks. The Suns have the tiebreaker over the Jazz as they swept them in the regular season 3-0. I can't believe the Suns, and they've certainly proved me wrong. I didn't think they were going to be a big team. A lot of people looked at them as to be a surprise or a sleeper in the West, and look at them. If the season ended today, they would be the one seed and hosting throughout the Western Conference playoffs. So, still a few games to be played. We'll see. I didn't check the status of Donovan Mitchell. Remember, he was out indefinitely with an injury. I don't know if he's back yet. You would think he's going to be back in the days to come leading up into the postseason. So, we'll keep our eyes on that. Denver right now is the three seed, just a half game ahead of the Clippers. Mavs are tied with the Lakers with the 5 and 6 seed, but also Portland, as I mentioned earlier. All three of those teams are 36 and 28, but the Mavs are 5, Lakers 6, Portland 7. And then you have Memphis at 8, 32 and 31, followed by the Warriors and Spurs. Spurs are now hanging on for dear life here because now the Pelicans are making a little bit of a charge. There's still three games and a loss. I don't think they're going to make any noise, but... We know that the NBA, they're going to try to push the Pelicans as much as they can for obvious reasons. But that's what we have there with the NBA. But that 5-6-7 there in the West, as well as the Celtics there with the Heat and the Hawks, those are going to be the races to watch. Yes, you can look at Utah Phoenix. Yes, you can look at Brooklyn, Philly, and Milwaukee. But a little bit of intrigue down the stretch as we're just a couple of weeks from closing out this NBA regular season. And I think that's it for the NBA before I move on. Let me just double check. That is it. Let's transition to the ice and some great news for the league. A couple weeks back, ESPN signed on for a seven-year deal to broadcast games and bring the league back to the network where it was prominent in the mid-80s up until the early 2000s. So with ESPN being a huge platform, as well as now TNT jumping into the mix for the first time with hockey, we know TNT is part of the NBA. Once upon a time, they were part of the NFL. And although TBS does carry the baseball, but the TNT family throws their hat in the ring for the NHL and signs on for the next seven years where they'll host three Stanley Cup Finals, the Winter Classic, also regular season games as we know. It's going to be tricky to see what that means for the postseason come next year because we know TNT is prominent with the NBA when it comes to April, May, and June. 
And although their games are broadcast on TBS and NBA TV, etc., but how they'll be able to juggle that remains to be seen. Obviously, that's nothing to worry about now, but just something to keep in the back of your mind down the road. But also with these games being streamed on ESPN+, Plus, HBO Max, I guess they're in bed with TNT and Time Warner, so that's also going to be a plus for the hockey fan to watch games on both of those outlets for those traveling. And it's just good for the league to have some visibility with a network that everybody knows of. NBC Sports Network, at the end of this year, is going to be kaput as it is and will host the postseason here upcoming in the latter part of this month and into June and July. But NBCSN, it's a nondescript network. It's just one of those type of platforms that was looking to get a boost, was looking to become an ESPN or even a CBS sports network from that regard. But sadly, although they have the Sunday night package, they don't really have a lot of sports. They don't have the NBA. They don't have baseball. Yeah, they do have some tennis tournaments. I believe they have the French Open and they have... Also, a couple of golf tournaments if they want to throw in there. But NBC's not really that big of a sports network as it once was. So for them to get off of that network and to sign on with ESPN and TNT is just a boon for the league. And then you have this other issue with the NHL when it comes to the border and the postseason. Now, they won't have to deal with it until you get to the conference finals. And again, we understand that the way the divisions are broken down, it's not an East versus West. It's central, it's east, it's north, and it's west. Understood. But for all intents and purposes, it looks like it's going to be a scenario where you're going to have central, east, that once we get to a conference final, those teams will link up. And same for the west and the north. But the one thing, as the country is starting to open up and restrictions are starting to taper off here, who knows what the authorities and officials in... Canada think about a postseason where they've said throughout the first round there's going to be no movement between any teams coming north of the border and that's going to be expected because it's not as if any teams will be heading north of the border to play in the postseason unless you get to a conference final now we all know if Canada is not going to open up the borders for not only just the NHL team but also for Major League Baseball with the Blue Jays and the Raptors are going to be long gone they're not going to make the postseason So when you have the postseason get that deep into the conference finals, the only thing you could think of is that they're going to have to play their games at a remote location. So what that means is that, let's say if Toronto is the team that comes out of the North and they play, I'm just going to throw out the Vegas Golden Knights, chances are they may be playing their games in Detroit. Because as of right now, the Red Wings aren't going to make the postseason. So they may choose Detroit since that's close to Toronto. Or it could be Chicago. It could be... Another team that's not going to be playing their games in their building this year. Because Chicago right now is on the outside looking in. As of this moment, you think that's going to be the case. There's still plenty of time between now and then. I'm sure the NHL has a backup plan knowing that if Canada is not going to be open for their team to come into the States and vice versa. Of course, they could come into the U.S., but going back is going to be the problem. I'm sure the NHL is already looking at certain cities close to Toronto where these teams could host their games and have some sort of atmosphere, or at least some sort of home ice. And honestly, it sucks, because if you've been playing in your building the whole year, and if you get that deep into the playoffs where you're in a conference final, knowing that you're not going to be at home, play in your building, in your environment and surroundings, and have to, let's say, play those handful of games in Chicago or Detroit, 
or somewhere else, yeah, it, it sucks. I mean, what else could you say about it? But again, something to keep in mind of, something that we'll talk about down the line. And I just wanted to put that out there. Now, as I get to what's happening on the ice, the Central and East, again, we've said this for weeks on end, and rightfully so. It is a fight to the finish, to say the least. And when you look at the East, the Penguins had a big week where they beat the Capitals twice, once in overtime on Thursday, and then shut them out there on Saturday. No Alexander Ovechkin. So that was big as the Capitals now are going to try to see where they stand. And interestingly enough, the Penguins against their competitors in the East, 6-2 and two against Washington and 6-2 and two against the New York Islanders. What does that mean for them moving forward? Is this going to be their last stand? And as we thought years back, even when they won the Stanley Cup, those back-to-back years against San Jose and Nashville, the years after that, you could see that they started to, I'm not going to say fall apart, but the veteran legs, the presence, and even the experience, it started to wither away a little bit. And what I mean by that is, you look at two years ago, they got swept by the Islanders in the first round, and blitzed out of the postseason. And then last year, as a five seed, and people could say it was unfair because of the COVID, and they had to restart and go up against a Montreal Canadian team that was on the come up, and a team that was an underdog that had their upset helmets and skates on, and rightfully so, as they did by beating the Penguins in that first round, three games to one. People thought that, what's left of the Penguins now? Aging team, veteran roster, etc. But all they've done is put themselves in first place. And you have to wonder whether or not they're going to have one last full tank to make a go at Lord Stanley here to kind of put the cherry on top for a run in this Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin era. And Malkin's maybe coming back in the coming days. as He's been out of the lineup for quite some time. So talk about reinforcements from a guy that has been one of their cornerstone players in the last decade plus. Although the Islanders and Capitals have a game in hand for both teams, but they have tiebreakers against them. 71 points to the Capitals, 69, Islanders, 67. And the Islanders have to worry about the Bruins because the Bruins have been playing well. They're one point behind them. And as I said last week, last game of the season in Boston is going to be critical because either the Islanders, if they lose that game and if it happens to fall with a tiebreaker scenario, does that mean the Islanders will have to play the Penguins in the first round, who they were 2-6 and against? Or will they stay where they're at and play the Capitals, who, although fared a little bit better against them, but still is going to be a tall opponent. And even after last year beating them in the first round, not going to be an easy chore for the Islanders, but we'll worry about that at that time. And the Islanders, as I said last week, they put the Rangers out in their misery, which was great with back-to-back shutouts later in the week after losing to Washington there last Tuesday. So good for them. And then in the Central... Carolina is still the team that is afloat here over the last couple of weeks. Game in hand with Tampa, two games in hand with Florida, as they're two points ahead of both Tampa and Florida right now in the Central Division. Nashville looks like they're going to be entrenched here at the number four as Dallas is starting to wane a little bit. Although they're three games back and it's still six to go, or five to go, I should say. We will see where the chips fall there in the Central. And then out West, not really much of a race in the North as we talked about. The Maple Leafs have pretty much taken off and this is going to be their year to win. Right now, they currently have 71 points. They're nine points ahead of Edmonton. If they do not come out of this North Division and face off against whomever out West in the Conference Final, it will be a bitter 
disappointment. I mean, anything short of a Stanley Cup is a disappointment, but with the trade they made there at the deadline, bringing in Nick Foligno, we know about the cast of characters that they have, the Austin Matthews, Michael Nylanders, John Tavares, etc., going down the list. Uh, this is Stanley Cup or bust for this team. And then you have Vegas Golden Knights, who now have a four-point lead over Colorado, and they've been playing very well here. Same for Minnesota, although St. Louis has gotten themselves in the four spot where last week they were a point behind, now they're three points ahead of Arizona for the four spot. So we'll see how this, a week from now, shakes down as we get to close out an NHL regular season and look forward to a postseason. And speaking of a team that we're going to look forward to, it's official that the Seattle Kraken has paid their last dues, $650 million, to enter the National Hockey League for next year and be a part of the festivities for the latest expansion team in the league. Now, Seattle is a city, as we all know, football team's thriving. We know about the baseball team. They played pretty well so far to start off their year, and the NBA could be next in line, as we all know the Supersonics from back in the days when they moved over to Oklahoma City. But another boost for the NHL, we know that expansion teams aren't like expansion teams of the past where they're going to be at the bottom of the standings as we saw four years ago with the Vegas Golden Knights in their first season making it to the Stanley Cup Finals is that to say Seattle's going to do the same I'm not going to predict that right now but certainly another team that we could look forward to and to even out the teams because we've had 31 here over the last few years so now we'll have 32 and I'm sure there'll be some realignment along the way where they'll be part of the Pacific and I'm sure one of those teams will be moved from one division to another we'll see how that shakes down but that's what you have there with the NHL And then to wrap up with the Kentucky Derby, the first leg of the Triple Crown there on Saturday. And last week I spoke briefly about how when we looked at the odds, and again, I don't know these horses if they were in my backyard, but just looking at the odds where Hot Rod Charlie, Rock Your World, those are two of the biggest, and the top one being Essential Quality at 5-2 was the favorite heading into the Derby on Saturday. But who came out shining as bright as possible for the seventh time as a trainer of a Kentucky Derby horse. Medina Spirit is your winner by a nose, or really by a couple of noses, by half a length, as he was your win where Mandaloin and Hot Rod Charlie were your place and show, giving the aforementioned trainer Bob Baffert his seventh Derby win, which is a record, and also jockey John Velasquez his fourth as a Derby winner. And this is actually back-to-back for them because in September, where they had to race the Derby preempted by COVID, they were the head of Authentic, that horse, where Baffert was the trainer and Velasquez was the jockey. So just in a matter of, what is it, six months, seven months, they are back-to-back Derby winners. And now we could look ahead. Well, before we look ahead, this was a close race, although Medina Spirit... Led from start to finish, but it was down to the wire between the aforementioned horses. And with Medina Spirit winning, you got to wonder whether or not he's going to have enough heart and enough in the tank just 14 days later to show up in Pimlico down in Maryland for a Preakness to win that second leg and then have all the pomp and circumstance leading to the Belmont three weeks after that. Based on what Baffert said at the end of this race, He said he was very, very surprised at the result. He knew that his horse had it in him, but he didn't realize, considering the competition that he had there with 
Essential Quality, who right out of the gate bumped with another horse, so Essential Quality didn't get off to the proper start or the good start that a lot of people thought he would get. But who knows? Based on what Baffert said, with the surprise and the shock of winning this derby, and he knows his horse better than anybody, is it going to be enough for him to go ahead and win a Preakness here a week from this coming Saturday? Now, I'm not a horse racing aficionado to say, but I would think if he came away with this just loving the horse more and knowing that it was an underdog and had a heart of a lion, etc. I don't know if it's going to bode well for Medina Spirit come next week. Now, here's the thing with the Preakness. Sometimes you have these horses pulled, which is weird because you would think that with these top horses, you'd want them to race consistently, especially with the races being seven weeks apart. But there are a lot of trainers and a lot of owners of these horses that will pull them and then bring them back for the Belmont just to, whether whether it's to get that rest or for them to say, ah, they don't want to put their horse in the field or risk any injury. I know horse racing, we get, that's a whole other story with the travesties that go on with that. But when you have a scenario where Medina Spirit is going to go in and next thing you know, he may not see Essential Quality or he may not see Hot Rod Charlie or he may not see Rocky World. And that the field goes from 20 to maybe 12, that he has that much more of a shot to win the Preakness. Right now, if it's going to be a full slate, I think it's going to be a tough chore just based on just what Baffert said. And again, Baffert's not speaking for the horse. The horse is its own entity, but you know, it's not as if he went in knowing that it was a top horse, but not being the favorite as far as the odds are concerned. And for him to win, you would think he's probably not going to have a big shot if he goes up against these horses a second time around. So that's my take. Again, we'll talk about it a little bit more next week. And I get that the podcast is on Monday and developments happen throughout the course of the week. So just stay tuned for anything I post on social media to see whether or not Medina Spirit's going to be able to catch that second leg or get that second victory to maybe have some buzz leading into the Belmont. Because as we all know, whomever wins the Derby, great. But if that horse who wins the Derby does not win the Preakness, the Belmont Stakes becomes an afterthought. It really does. But if somehow, some way. Medina Spirit does win. You'll have some juice. You'll have some gas going into the Belmont. And obviously a lot to talk about between now and then if that does happen. So we'll certainly keep our eyes on that. And then lastly, you had 51,000 participants show up for this race, which they said it was going to be 40-50% capacity. You see all the stars and everybody that was there. They had to abide by the rules, the regulations, the protocols, etc., Let's see if there's going to be any fallout from that. You'd think they wouldn't be if everybody was protected or kept their distance. But whenever you have 51,000 people at an event, which is the most by far in a sporting event since sports has been back in our consciousness and going back to the last July. And obviously in any sport, you're not going to get 51,000 at a basketball game or a hockey game. Baseball, as we all know, it's 10 to 20%. I understand in Texas it's 100%, but that ballpark only holds about 40-something thousand and then an NFL stadium, we haven't seen it full since going back to 2019. So we'll see for Pimlico and the Preakness, how many people show up there, and then the Belmont and so on. So we will keep our fingers on the pulse when it comes to that. So let's wrap it up, people. Close it out, as I always do with my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week, I'm going to give it to Christian Pulisic, who is the first U.S. male to score a goal in a Champions League semifinal as he did on Tuesday versus Real Madrid. Now Pulisic plays for Chelsea. The game ended in a 1-1 tie, but to think it was historic as he was the first one to do so in that semifinal match. 
Now, for those who've listened to the podcast over the years, soccer isn't a sport that if I've spent 20 minutes on in combination to the 192 episodes that I put forth, that may be too much. And I know it's sad because soccer is a huge sport globally, understood, etc., but it's not really talked about here. And it's not as if I don't want to talk about it, but again, because it's not really in our consciousness and all those leagues overseas, it doesn't really impact what it does here as far as America goes. And I know there's the MLS and you have a couple teams here in my backyard with the Red Bulls and the New York City Football Club, but it's on the bottom of the food chain when it comes to sports is concerned, especially in my eyes. And I'm sure in a lot of people's eyes for that matter. But at least I want to give him some shine. It was historic. And with everything that's going on with the Manchester United team owned by Malcolm Glazer of the Buccaneers, with the fans protesting with everything that's going on there. And I don't know 100% completely what's going on, so I'm not going to talk about something I don't really know. But to give the sport a little shine and to give Pulisic his due, he is my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes to Hall of Famer Roberto Alomar, who was a consultant to Major League Baseball and a special assistant to the Toronto Blue Jays, has been placed on the MLB's ineligible list over a sexual misconduct allegation dating back to 2014. Now, details haven't been revealed as to what took place. Alomar tweeted a statement or posted something where he was disappointed, surprised, upset, but understood the decision. And again, that was a statement. I saw that on Twitter. But here's the lowdown of the after effects of this decision. I don't know if you've seen, read, heard, whatever, but first off, he's unable to be in a ballpark throughout Major League Baseball. I don't even think he could buy a ticket at this point because when you're on the ineligible list, obviously he cannot be part of any Major League Baseball function, whether that's a game, an event off-site, in the building, whatever it may be. So he has that to deal with, but then the Blue Jays have come out and said that anything connected, whether it's an acknowledgement, his number 12 that was raised to the rafters there in the Rogers Center, Sky Dome in Toronto, that's going to be taken down. Anything that has to do with him and their World Series teams back in the mid-90s or early 90s, 92, 93, it's going to be taken down. There's going to be zero acknowledgement of the Baseball Hall of Famer. So now that leads to the next step where the Baseball Hall of Fame, as they said right now, that they're not going to take down the plaque or any memorabilia when it comes to Alomar and what MLB has laid the smackdown, and rightfully and understandably so, on Alomar. And I get it that he was enshrined in 2011 and it was three years before this happened, and I get that it's going to being an uproar to the cancel culture people and what's going on. Oh, you're going to take him out of the Hall of Fame. Then what are you going to do? Well, guess what? This is the world we live in. It's 2021. These things are going to be highlighted. These things are going to be broadcast for everybody to see. And right, not to make us all judges, juries, and executioners when it comes to canceling people out, but this is it, people. So when it comes to race, when it comes to creed, when it comes to orientation, sexual orientation for that matter, your behaviors, etc. If this is going to be out there for the world to see, then there's going to be a price to pay. And if that's going to be the case where they're not going to take out Alomar, I'm sure there are plenty of other guys that they could take out of the Hall of Fame who were racist back in the day, who certainly did some very nefarious things, who are, have plaques and are enshrined in the Hall of Fame. So maybe that's the other thing they're worried about because they know that if they take Alomar out, there's going to be somebody somewhere that's going to say, well, if he's going to be out, then take this guy out or take that guy out or take that owner out or take that 
writer out, broadcaster, whatever. Because remember, there's wings to the Hall of Fame besides players. So I'm sure they don't want to deal with that. But guess what? At some point, I'm sure there's going to be backlash and the Hall of Fame are going to have to take notice and do something about it. That's not to say it's going to happen or it's bound to happen, you would think, at some point. But with all that being said, Roberto Alomar, my guy, you are my zero of the week. And I'll do it. Episode 192, just about in the books. So, as I always like to say, people, I appreciate you taking the time out, not only to download and to listen to what it is that I have to say about the world of sports, but I'm sure you're busy. I'm sure there's other podcasts you listen to, you read books, watch stuff on Netflix, whatever. So, I sincerely mean it by saying how much I appreciate you listening to my opinions, analysis, to entertain you guys, inform you, and gals, and inform you on my sports takes, on my world, and how I feel about what goes on in this universe. And as I try to promote the growth and expansion of this podcast, singularly, I'm also asking you to do so on your end, if you can, please, to subscribe, rate, and review on wherever you get your podcasts, or if it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Overcast, even Amazon Music, please do so. And by subscribing, the minute you do that, you just go to your app on your phone or wherever you download your podcast, just hit subscribe. Generally, around Monday, I'd say 4 to 5 o'clock, it's going to pop up on your phone. And all you got to do is just go to your podcast app, you'll see J Reels Podcast, and you hit play, and away you go. That's what happens when you subscribe to it. Leave a rating, post a review, because that's just going to increase the visibility of this podcast with those who aren't familiar with it, so I could bring forth that guest, whether it's the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, writer, blogger, studio host, so they could share their experiences with me, so in turn, I could flip that to you guys so you could hear what they have to say, and bring it twice a week. I know it's been a while since I've had a guest on, but I'm working behind the scenes to try to bring that to you, so again, by subscribing, rating, reviewing, and doing your job, I would immensely appreciate that. If you want to hit me up with a question, comment, criticism, or praise, you could do so at any of my social media accounts. Send me a DM at JReels or the JReels Podcast on Instagram. JReels1, just the number on Twitter. The JReels Podcast fan page on Facebook. And then the old-fashioned way by email to JReelsPodcast at gmail.com. Please send whatever it is that's on your mind. Like I said, questions, comments, criticism, praise. I'll be sure to follow up with you. And then in closing, to support the podcast, my endeavor... Whatever you want to contribute, I would greatly appreciate it. You could go to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy. And whatever you want to contribute to that, whether it's to the website, the upkeep of that, production, anything that goes on behind the scenes with this podcast that I put forth each and every week for you guys. Hands crossed, grateful, thankful for that. Because whether you do or do not know, This is what I love to talk about, people. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA. It's in every fiber of my being. Not only do I love to dissect everything that's going on in sports, not only do I love to share my opinions, thoughts, all that that I mentioned earlier on whatever that's going on, whether it's on the diamond, whether it's on the gridiron, whether it's on the ice, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it, from my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J. Rose Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>